Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry... We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. M-S-W Media. Welcome to the Daily Beans for Thursday, October 26, 2023. Today, the Republican Party has elected a far-right election denialist to be Speaker of the House. Donald Trump has been fined another $10,000 for violating his gag order. The Department of Justice is set to file its opposition of Trump's appeal of the limited gag order issued by Judge Chutkin in D.C., Trump lawyers prepare for more guilty pleas in Fulton County. Jamal Bowman has pled guilty to a misdemeanor and pays a fine for pulling the fire alarm. A former NSA employee pleads guilty to trying to sell U.S. secrets to Russia. And a Senate inquiry finds that a rich benefactor paid off a $267,000 loan for Justice Thomas. I'm your host, Allison Gill. Hey, everybody. Happy Thursday. We're almost to the end of the week. Dana is still out, but she will be back next week. Thank you so much for sticking with me through this week. I appreciate it. Uh, there will be a cleanup bonus this weekend. Clean up on L45 with me and Pete Strzok. And uh, of course, there will be a weekly beans wrap up for patrons uh, this weekend as well. And of course, the Jack podcast drops on Sunday. 
Uh, November 3rd, we will have another Daily Beans patron happy hour, where if you're a patron of this show, supporting independent media, uh, thank you so much if you are. Um, and uh, if you are, you can join us on November 3rd. Ask me anything. And it's a Zoom call. So I'll be there on video and you can see my face and I'll probably be wearing jammies. Who knows? But we'll cook up some cocktails and mocktails and have a nice chat. Again, November 3rd, 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 Eastern. If you want to become a patron, go to patreon.com slash Muller She Wrote. Uh, we got a couple of quick hits. First, as we discussed on Clean Up on All 45, Fonnie Willis has been offering plea deals to pretty much everybody except Trump, Rudy, and Eastman. Uh, I think the next to flip will be Hampton, Misty Hampton, or Kathy Latham. Uh, maybe Cheely, one of the people there who helped intimidate Ruby Freeman, along with uh, Travion Cootie. And uh, Harrison Floyd, I believe, is the other person in that particular spoke of the hub and spoke conspiracy. Uh, we could also see Clark go. They didn't mention Clark in this particular article. But again, we'll we'll dive into this on the next cleanup on all 45. And according to Rolling Stone, Trump world is freaking out right now. They're expecting an avalanche of plea deals in Fulton County, and they're doing everything they can to dig up dirt on his co-defendants so they can impeach them, you know, on the stand when they, you know, when they flip. Uh, and probably also on Truth Social. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see if a gag order is issued there. Uh, Pete and I, again, we're going to cover that in depth on cleanup. And Representative Jamal Bowman has pled guilty to one misdemeanor count for pulling the fire alarm in the Cannon House office building. He's agreed to pay the maximum $1,000 fine. And today, Judge Angoron fined Donald Trump again, a second time for violating his limited gag order in New York. Um, he also stormed out of the courtroom after his lawyers demanded an immediate verdict because they felt they won the trial. And the judge said no. So he stormed out of the courtroom like a baby. With regard to the gag order, later on in the show, we're going to talk with the host of Justice Matters and MSNBC contributor, my friend, Glenn Kirshner. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the potential DOJ filing in the D.C. Judge Chutkin limited gag order. So you don't want to miss that discussion. It's always wonderful to speak to our friend Glenn. All right, we have a lot of news to get to. Let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. First up from Rolling Stone, Mike Johnson is the new Speaker of the House. The Louisiana Republican won the gavel on Wednesday, three chaos-filled weeks after the party ousted Kevin McCarthy from the position earlier this month. Republicans voted unanimously to make him second in line to the presidency. Now, Johnson, who was elected to the House in 2016, is serving just his fourth term in Congress and is the least experienced speaker elected to the position since the 1870s. Three other candidates, Steve Scalise, Jim Jordan and Tom Emmer, failed to convert their nominations into successful floor votes, paving the way for Johnson. Now, Johnson may lack seniority. But he has a hardline fundamentalist and Trump-friendly record, which garnered a nod of approval from the former president hours before the vote. Trump was quick to congratulate Johnson after he won the gavel. Now, this was from outside of the courthouse where he's on trial in New York. Congratulations to Rep. Mike Johnson. He will be a great speaker. Make America great again. He wrote that on Truth Social. The most conservative members of the Republican caucus are celebrating Johnson's rise to the most powerful position in the House. Matt Gates, the architect of McCarthy's ouster, told far-right political activist Steve Bannon on Wednesday that if you don't think that moving from Kevin McCarthy to MAGA Mike Johnson shows the ascendance of this movement and where the power in the Republican Party truly lies, then you're not paying attention. 
The defining feature of Johnson's career in the House has to date been his loyalty to the former president. Johnson served on Trump's defense team in both of his Senate impeachment trials, the first for his alleged efforts to pressure Ukrainian officials to investigate the Biden family, and the second over his role in the violent attack on the Capitol on January 6th. Johnson also rallied support in Congress for Trump's challenges to his 2020 election loss. Johnson personally lobbied and secured support from 126 House Republicans for an amicus brief to the Texas lawsuit that sought to invalidate millions of votes from four key battleground states won by Biden. Johnson personally sent an email to members of the House and Senate with the subject line, time-sensitive request from President Trump. Quote, he specifically asked me to contact all Republican members of the House and Senate today and request that all join on to our brief. He said he will be anxiously awaiting the final list to review, unquote. The lawsuit was ultimately rejected by the Supreme Court, but Johnson's efforts went far beyond the Texas lawsuit. According to The New York Times, Johnson was the mind behind a spurious legal argument claiming that pandemic era changes to voting rights were unconstitutional and could invalidate election results in various states. Johnson reportedly proposed his theory to the GOP House caucus the night before January 6th, and Republicans used the argument to justify voting against certifying the election. That's the whole changing the rules at the last minute thing which is what the House did to get him elected, by the way. Johnson also promoted conspiracy theories that Dominion Voting Systems, that's the voting machine software company, helped rig the election against Trump. Quote, the allegations about these voting machines, some of them being rigged with the software by Dominion, there's a lot of merit to that. He said that in November of 2020. They know that in Georgia it really was rigged, he said. By the way, Sidney Powell just pled guilty to this. Now, Johnson is a hardline opponent of reproductive rights as well. He has championed the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe and is currently co-sponsoring multiple nationwide abortion bans. Johnson doesn't just believe abortion should be illegal, though. He thinks anyone who performs one should do hard time. Quote, late yesterday, the Louisiana Department of Health informed abortion facilities in our state that the right to life has now been restored. Perform an abortion and get imprisoned at hard labor for one to 10 years and you're fined 10 to $100,000. That's what he wrote of the state's response to the death of Roe v. Wade in the summer of 2022. Johnson also argued that abortion is depriving the economy of workers. This is so gross. Quote, Roe v. Wade gave constitutional cover to the elective killing of unborn children in America, period. You think about the implications of that on the economy. If we had all those able-bodied workers in the economy, we wouldn't be going upside down and toppling over like this. Editorials written by Johnson in the mid-2000s, which were reviewed by CNN, featured language referring to homosexuality as, quote, inherently unnatural and a dangerous lifestyle. Johnson argued that its legalization would lead to a slippery slope, culminating in the legal acceptance of pedophilia and the destruction of the entire democratic system. Quote, homosexual relationships are inherently unnatural, and the studies clearly show, he said, the studies clearly show are ultimately harmful and costly for everyone. He wrote that in 2004 in an article supporting a proposed Louisiana constitutional amendment that would ban same-sex marriage. He went on to say, society cannot give its stamp of approval to such a dangerous lifestyle. If we change marriage for this tiny modern minority, we'll have to do it for every deviant group. Polygamists, polyamorists, pedophiles, and others will be next in line to claim equal protection. They already are. There will be no legal basis to deny a bisexual the right to marry a partner of each sex or a person to marry his pet. Unquote. So that's where that trope came from. 
Now, you know me. My job is to hang this speaker election around the Republicans' necks like an albatross in 2024. There are no moderate Republicans. And voters have and will continue to make their voices heard about Trump Republicans. So we need to make them pick a side. Next up, from Joe Becker at the New York Times, the terms of the private loan were as generous as they were clear. With no money down, Justice Clarence Thomas could borrow more than a quarter of a million dollars from a wealthy friend to buy a 40-foot luxury motor coach, making annual interest-only payments for five years. Only then would the principal come due. But despite the favorable nature of the 1999 loan and a lengthy extension to make good on his obligations, Justice Thomas failed to repay a significant portion, or perhaps any, of the $267,000 in principle. That's according to a new report by Democratic members of the Senate Finance Committee. Nearly nine years later, after Justice Thomas had made an unclear number of the interest payments, the outstanding balance was forgiven, an outcome with ethical and potential tax consequences. Quote, this was, in short, a sweetheart deal that made no logical sense from a business perspective. That's Michael Hammersley, a tax lawyer who has served as a congressional expert witness, talking to The New York Times. The Senate inquiry was prompted by a Times investigation published in August that revealed Justice Thomas bought his Prevost Marathon Les Mirage XL, a brand favored by touring rock bands and the super wealthy, with financing from Anthony Welters, a longtime friend who made his fortune in the healthcare industry. Healthcare industry. In a statement to the Times this summer, Welters said the loan had been satisfied in 2008. He declined to answer whether that meant Thomas had paid it off, nor did he respond to other basic questions about the terms. But while a number of questions remain, he gave a much fuller account to the committee, which has the authority to issue subpoenas and compel testimony. The documents he volunteered indicate that at the very least, Justice Thomas appeared to have flouted an ethics rule requiring that he include any discharge of indebtedness as income on required annual financial disclosure reports. He didn't. In addition, the IRS treats debt forgiveness as income to the borrower. Senator Ron Wyden, Oregon Democrat who leads the Senate Finance Committee, called on Justice Thomas to, quote, inform the committee exactly how much loan was forgiven and whether he properly reported the loan forgiveness on his tax return and paid all taxes owed. Justice Thomas did not respond immediately to questions sent to him through the Supreme Court spokeswoman. Of course not. In recent months, amid a series of reports of ethical lapses, that's a nice way to put it, the Supreme Court has faced intense public pressure to adopt stricter ethics rules, which several justices publicly endorse. Now, much of the controversy has centered on how wealthy benefactors have bestowed an array of undisclosed gifts on Justice Thomas and his wife, Ginny, buying and renovating the home where his mother lives, helping to pay for his great nephew's tuition, and hosting the couple on very lavish vacations that included travel aboard private jets and super yachts. But in terms of its combined monetary and image crafting value, few of those benefits can rival the motor coach. For years, it has served as a central trope of the justices, quote, just folks persona in speeches and interviews with 60 Minutes and other TV programs and a documentary financed by conservative supporters. Justice Thomas has extolled the joys of driving the motor coach through America in the heartland in summertime and chit chatting with the people he meets in Walmart parking lots along the way. Always left out of that telling, however, was just how much the motor coach cost and how the financially hard-pressed justice managed to acquire it. According to title and other records unearthed by the New York Times, he bought it used in December 1999 for $267,000. In today's dollars, that's $493,000. 
The title listed Mr. Welters as the lien holder. The two men were close, bonded by similarly impoverished childhoods and the shared professional experience of working first as aides to Republican senators on the Hill and later as political appointees in the Reagan administration. As Mr. Welters put it in his statement to the Times, I loaned a friend money, as I have other friends and family. We've all been on one side or the other of that equation. Yeah, boy, I can't tell you how many times I needed 250 grand to buy a luxury motor coach and just had a friend just front that. I mean, who who among us, right? The Times goes on to say, still, it would have been exceedingly difficult for Thomas to obtain a bank loan, let alone one with the terms Mr. Welters offered. According to the industry experts, even financial institutions that specialize in recreational vehicles are reluctant to lend on used luxury motor coaches like this one, in part because of their high level of customization. It makes them difficult to value. Moreover, financial disclosures and other records show that the Thomases relied primarily on his judicial salary for income and were already carrying a heavy debt. By contrast, the experts said, most buyers are high-wealth individuals who can pay cash or put a substantial amount down and have excellent credit. Mr. Welters, in response to the questions from the Finance Committee, shared loan documents dated December 6, 1999, showing that he lent Justice and Mrs. Thomas the entire purchase amount at an annual interest rate of just 7.5%. Now, while that rate was in line with what might have been found in the market at the time, what made the arrangement unusually favorable was that over the course of the five-year loan, Justice Thomas did not have to pay any of the principal. Instead, he simply had to make annual interest payments of $20,000. The principal amount borrowed would come due in one balloon payment on the loan's maturity date in December of 2004. Vehicle loans like this are very uncommon, experts say, because of the risk to the lender. The value of the collateral securing the loan, in this case a motor coach, depreciates rapidly while the outstanding principal remains constant. In a handwritten note to Mr. Welters, on Supreme Court letterhead, dated the same day the loan documents were signed, Justice Thomas said the loan agreement should accurately reflect their understanding and promised to abide by it to the letter. But in 2004, when the principal came due, Thomas didn't make good on his debt, according to records obtained by the committee and cited in their report. Instead, Welters granted him a 10-year extension with the same interest-only terms. This, despite the fact that the previous year, Justice Thomas had collected a half a million dollars of a $1.5 million advance for his autobiography. That's according to his financial disclosures. Then in late 2008, Welter simply forgave the balance of the loan. Now, in a contemporaneous note to Justice Thomas, summarized by the investigators, Welter said he was doing so because the justice's many years of interest-only payments now exceeded the purchase price. For that reason, Mr. Welters told Justice Thomas he did not feel it was appropriate to continue to accept payments, even though he had the right to them. But Mr. Welters' math didn't add up. Even if Justice Thomas had made all the scheduled annual interest-only payments, that would only amount to a little over $180,000. That's almost ninety grand short of the purchase price. And what's more, the only proof of payment that Mr. Welters was able to provide was a copy of a single canceled check dated December 2000 for $20,000, the amount of a single interest payment. Mr. Welters' representatives told investigators he believes there may have been additional interest payments and, with less certainty, perhaps payment of some fraction of the principal. That's according to an aide to Mr. Wyden. But, quote, none of the documents reviewed by the committee staff indicate that Thomas ever made payments to Welters in excess of the annual interest in the loan. Quote, no bank behaving in a commercially reasonable arm's length manner would have given that loan in the first place. 
That's Mr. Hammersley to the that's the tax expert quote. And a bank doesn't just say, oh, gee, you paid a lot in interest. We're good. You don't need to pay back what you actually owe. Quote, while I understand the attention given who this involves, the difference between what you're comparing to and what happened here is that a friend lent another friend money. As anyone who has borrowed or lent to family members or friends knows, it's simply not the same as a bank, unquote. That is a distinction, though, that the IRS does not make. Assuming that the loan was entered into genuinely and not intended from the start as an outright gift, the IRS would treat the forgiven $267,000 as as well as any missed interest payments, as income to Justice Thomas. We'll see what happens. Is the IRS investigating? Are they investigating anything? Are they looking at the Trump Organization, Seven Springs Estates? I don't know. But I hope someone does Kavanaugh's debts next. And this is from Colleen Slevin at The Post. A former NSA employee from Colorado pled guilty Monday to trying to sell classified national security information to Russia, Federal prosecutors agreed not to ask for more than about 22 years in prison for a guy named Dalkey when he is sentenced in April, if he adheres to the terms of the plea deal. But the judge will ultimately decide his punishment. Dalkey, a 31-year-old Army veteran from Colorado Springs, technically faces up to a possible life sentence for giving the information to an undercover FBI agent who prosecutors say Dalkey believed was a Russian agent. However, accepting responsibility for crime usually leads to a lighter sentence. Dalke told the agent he wanted to, quote, cause change after questioning the United States role in causing damage to the world. But he, uh, he also said he was uh, $237,000 in debt. And that's according to court documents. He also allegedly said he decided to work with Russia because his heritage ties back to that country. Dalke pled guilty during a hearing before the U.S. District Judge Raymond Moore. He only spoke in answer uh, to questions from Moore about whether he understood the terms of the deal. He acknowledged that he'd been taking medications for mental illness while being held in custody for about a year now. Dalke was paid $16,000 in cryptocurrency for excerpts of some documents that he passed on to an agent to show what he had. Then he offered to sell the rest of the information for another $85,000. That's according to the plea deal. The agent directed him to go to Denver's downtown train station on September 28, 2022, and send the documents using a secure digital connection during a four-hour window. Dalke arrived with his laptop and first used the connection to send a thank-you letter that opened and closed in Russian, in which he said he looks forward to our friendship and shared benefit. Moments after, he used his laptop to transfer all the files. And then FBI agents arrested him. According to the indictment, the information Dalkey sought to give to Russia included a threat assessment of the military offensive capabilities of a third unnamed country. It also includes the description of sensitive U.S. defense capabilities, some of which relates to that same foreign country. The plea deal requires, among other things, that Dalkey agree to talk to authorities about his crimes and provide truthful, accurate, and valuable information about what happened. Dalke worked as an information systems security designer for the NSA, the U.S. intelligence agency that collects and analyzes signals from foreign and domestic sources for the purpose of intelligence and counterintelligence. After he left and gave the classified information to the undercover agent, prosecutors say he reapplied to work at the NSA. All right, everybody. That's the news for today. We need your good news. Send it to us at dailybeanspod.com and click on contact. But first, after this break, we're going to be back with the man, host of Justice Matters, MSNBC contributor, my friend Glenn Kirshner. Stick around. We'll be right back. After these messages, we'll be right back. 
Hey, everybody, welcome back. Happy to be joined today by my friend, host of the Justice Matters podcast. You can get it anywhere you get podcasts and also his amazing YouTube channel. And he's an MSNBC contributor. Please welcome Glenn Kirshner. Hey, G, how you doing? I am good. I could be better if uh, Judge Angoron had uh, maybe hit the uh, the defendant, uh, Donald Trump, with a little bit more of a sanction for violating again his gag order. And, and that's what I wanted to talk to you about today. Gag orders of the gaggle of gag orders that we're going through mm. right now. And let's start. Let's start with the, the brand new just today as we're sitting here. Second violation of Judge Angoron's limited gag order in New York. Yeah, it's uh, it's so frustrating um, because when Judge Angoron saw that Donald Trump endangered uh, his clerk, somebody that was close is close to Judge Angoron, somebody that's important to Judge Angoron, the judge issued what I call a snap gag order. He said, you can't do that again. I'm ordering you not to. And that's wonderful. Right. And it's appropriate. But why is it that we don't react this way um, as judges, as institutions of government, when Donald Trump endangers the lives of witnesses? Why is it that a judge will only act and act instantly to protect somebody that's close and important to the judge? Seems to me all of the witnesses deserve the protection of court issued gag orders because they're even more at risk because Donald Trump is endangering their lives every day with what he says and what he posts. And yet the system seems ill-equipped to deal with Donald Trump's daily dangerous, if not deadly, rhetoric. And I'm sure we'll talk about Judge Chutkin's gag order and where that is at this moment in time. But the system seems either unwilling or unable to flex its muscle as it's entitled to do under the law. And AG, I will never be able to adequately explain why that is. And what do you think of uh, Judge Angoron's uh, $5,000 fine for his first violation by not taking down a mirror post about his clerk on his campaign website? Chris Keyes saying, we didn't know. We didn't know it was there. We emailed it to 25,000 people, but we didn't know it was there. And then for the second violation to have a $10,000 fine, these seem like drop in the well fines for someone with so much means. I feel like it is that I mean, maybe that's what you would charge a normal person. But if you're you know, standing in front of someone whose property is worth $1.5 billion in Florida, why uh, why not make it uh, actually hurt? I don't know, because, you know, Trump can say, do me a favor, go check my couch cushions for 10 grand or more likely, hey, I um, I'm going to grift some more from my base to satisfy this ten thousand dollar fine. I, I don't want to in knee jerk fashion say it's a joke. Ten thousand dollars. I think it probably should have gone up to one hundred thousand dollars. I think Donald Trump should be held in contempt sometime soon. And perhaps, uh, you know, set down in a jail cell for a day or a week. I mean, at some point, the system has to, you know, respond to the threat. And, um, you know, Donald Trump is going to keep pushing and pushing and testing and uh, and believing that he's above the law um, as long as this is the way the system responds. Just give me a couple of more dollars and it's all good. 
Yeah, I'll raise that off of uh, people on limited income and Social Security who've checked a box to have monthly repetitive donations withdrawn from their savings in a day, right? Like, it just doesn't seem, I don't know, it just doesn't seem like the punishment fits the crime uh, here. But let's talk a little bit about being above the law over in Judge Chutkin's courtroom, because she has been very adamant about treating Donald Trump like uh, any other criminal defendant. And when she issued her limited gag order, it wasn't a full gag order, even though what he did and said should have been, in my opinion, something that anybody else, you or I, would have faced a full gag order over. But, you know, I and I understand the argument that, you know, he wants her or any judge to jail him or, you know, have like really severe sanctions. And we know they ramp up generally. But, you know, here it's like the the repetitive. He's not above the law, but he kind of is if you have to treat him with kid gloves to not trample on his First Amendment rights because he's running for president or whatever. And this week, uh, as she temporarily for a few days stayed her limited gag order that she ordered, he went out and immediately called Jack Smith deranged, which is was specific language that came up in the hearing, immediately went after Sidney Powell and Mike Flynn. And then two posts last night against Mark Meadows, all potential witnesses in the D.C. trial. And then, of course, also Pratt, the Australian billionaire who's who's a potential witness down in a different case, but still, nonetheless, witness intimidation. We're not going to get anything out of Judge Aileen Cannon over that, although we may see filings. Uh, DOJ's filing is due today. I'm assuming those posts will be included in there. But it's not just about the gag order. Doesn't that also violate his bail conditions? Yeah, it should result in him. You know, I think we're beyond sanctioning him for violations of gag orders. I think he has forfeited his right to remain on release pending trial. He should be revoked. You know, it was so disheartening. I spent two hours in the courtroom watching the argument over the gag order. And uh, I'll I'll be in the courtroom for all future hearings in the Trump case in D.C. And Judge Chutkin said, if any other defendant who was on pretrial release said that the prosecutor handling his case is a deranged thug, that person would find themselves in pretrial detention. So that was absolutely true, given my 30 years experience as a prosecutor. She was absolutely right. But it's so disheartening that she announced that there is a double standard at play and that Donald Trump is, if not above the law, he's being treated differently from every other defendant. We have to stop treating him like a presidential candidate and start treating him like somebody who's on release in four criminal cases charged with some of the most consequential crimes in our nation's history, up to and including violations of the Espionage Act. And stop using extraneous factors to make prosecutorial and judicial decisions. You know, I'm not saying these are political considerations. I don't think Jack Smith or or Judge Chutkin or others are letting politics interfere in the due administration of justice, but they are letting extraneous factors interfere with the due administration of justice. So I don't want to see him sanctioned for a violation of a gag order. I want to see him revoked on pretrial release because any other human being would be And we owe it 
to the entire country. And frankly, AG, we owe it to everybody else who's sitting in pretrial detention right now, posing a far less danger to the community, to society, and to our democracy. We owe it to everyone to equally apply the law to Donald Trump. And maybe someday some judge is going to do it, but I haven't quite seen it yet. Yeah. And we've long said, you and I both, that not doing it is political. When we talk about opening the Russia investigation, not doing it would be it would have been a political dereliction of duty. We talk about, well, if we indict him, it'll embolden him. But not doing that is a political consideration. And it is our duty to do so. Follow the facts and the law. We talked about it when we were thinking about impeaching him. Well, it'll never get through the Senate. Yeah, but we don't not impeach somebody because it won't con- get convicted in the Senate. It's our duty as duly elected people, of the United States, to do this action, you know, because it's it would be a political consideration to not. And so I, I feel we're in the exact same position with the Russia investigation, the impeachment and even indicting this man that not applying the law equally by remanding him or, you know, or actually imposing some sort of a sanction is a, a political consideration and a, a dereliction of, of duty, uh, honestly. But I also do understand the concept of not wanting to be able to give him a reason to appeal or uh, give him a reason to file a, you know, well, he's already filed his motion for prosecutorial misconduct or uh, uh, what is it? Selective, selective prosecution. Prosecution. Uh, those those are hilarious. We can talk about those another time, that, that flurry of motions that came in before midnight and a couple after midnight. But it just it feels like it would be political not to in these cases. And and I just don't feel like the law is being applied equally. Nobody can accuse us of learning from our mistakes. We seem determined to make the same mistake over and over and over. And I'm resisting even going to things like, why wasn't Donald Trump prosecuted the day he left office for bribing and extorting President Zelensky for countless obstruction of justice crimes that were pretty meticulously documented in volume two of the Trump-Russia report for avoidable COVID deaths. I mean, on and on and on. We seem determined to put the ruling class criminals out of reach. And I think ultimately that will be our downfall, not the conduct of the ruling class criminals. It is the refusal of the good people in government, the honest, ethical, hardworking, you know, law abiding people, the refusal to do what the facts and the law demand for fear of losing, for fear of embarrassment, for fear of criticism, for fear that you're going to be, you know, screamed at as making political decisions. And that will be our downfall, AG, if we're prepared to to continue to decline to hold the ruling class criminals accountable. We're, we're giving it away. We're giving our democracy away. I would prefer not to do that. Oh, same. And, and I'm wondering what the solution is here, because we know longstanding Department of Justice policy is to be quiet. And when you don't say anything, like you've talked about many times, every after court, Trump will go out and say a bunch of stuff and the DOJ will say nothing when we talk about possibly televising the D.C. trial. And that leaves a vacuum open for disinformation. It, the same is true for what the Department of Justice did not do after, uh, you know, Trump left office with regard to the obstruction of justice in the Mueller report, the covid deaths, et cetera. If there is a valid reason, if Bill Barr, which I suspect somehow made it impossible to to bring these charges, 
why don't you tell us about that? Um, but, you know, then you give the DOJ a black eye and it makes the institution look bad. So I kind of understand six and one half dozen, but we're not nine. Like, explain it to us. I'm, I'm with you. I, I don't understand. The silence is the is the problem because it will get filled with disinformation and misinformation and lies, at, which are, I think, more detrimental to our Department of Justice than coming out and telling everybody why you didn't do it. The disinformation wins if we don't step up and, you know, spread a little bit of daylight on what the heck Bill Barr and Donald Trump and, and the rest of them did. You know, I remember advocating for um, fireside chats. You know, I wish Joe Biden would have brought each agency head, each one, education, HHS and, you know, EPA to a fireside chat for the American people and say, Listen, we're not here to criticize the former administration, but we are here to tell you what we found inside each of these agencies when we came into power and we had to go on on this really substantial cleanup mission to try to set these agencies back on track to do what they were designed to do and do it in as non-judgmental, non-political a way. But then at least the American people would have some information to assess why it is we say things like Bill Barr corrupted and weaponized the Department of Justice. Well, tell us why, show us how, and tell us how you're going to make it right. You know, but what do we, as you just pointed out, we get nothing. So the disinformation wins. And listen, we know the remedy to what ails us. It is an application of the rule of law without fear or favor, but we have not been up to the task. Yeah. And you and I, for a very long time, have been combating misinformation with the truth. But absent the truth, all we can do is speculate. And it it, it puts us in a weaker position to be able to push back against the misinformation. So, I mean, I guess we'll just keep trying to do that (laughs) the best that we can, my friend. Uh, But I appreciate your time today. I really do. Everybody needs to listen to Justice Matters. If you don't already, I would be very surprised if you don't already. And I hope we can have you back on again soon. My friend, Glenn Kirshner. Thanks, AG. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back with the good news. Everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Good news, good news. And if you have any good news, confessions, corrections, you want to play What the Mutt, Find the Cat, uh, What's the Cow, what, what do we call that, Opine on the Bovine, What the Hequine, which is, <laughs> or I guess your horse breed, I'm really, it's like, I'm the best at that, I don't know why. Uh, if you want to send in a shout out to a loved one or a small business in your area or your business, um, whatever you're making or creating, you're, uh, we will want to hear from our entrepreneurs in the Leguminati. Uh, if you have a shit kid say, or shit your parents say, or shit you say, uh, we'd love to hear about that. Whoopie stories, blankie stories, um, stuffed animal stories. If you have um, pod pet tax, if you can't, if you don't have pod pet tax, you can send us an adoptable pet in your area. Whatever it is, your theses and and dissertation titles, we want to hear it. Send it to us at uh, dailybeanspod.com and click on contact. First up from Kelly S. No pronouns given. I do love listening and you guys are so smart, but I have a correction on the cow breed. Irishire is a Scottish breed and a country of Robert Burns. 
the Scottish poet. It's pronounced Ayrshire. Rolling the R's is also encouraged. Oh, <laughs> yeah, it's not going to happen today. <laughs> Hugs and thanks for the good news. Kelly, thank you so much. Ayrshire. Got it. Next up from Naomi, pronouns she and her. Hi, ladies. This is a total self shout out. And I've been a listener from the beginning. You know, the kitchen audio days. Awesome. So I decided to take on a completely unnecessary project and turn my house into a giant monster for Halloween. And I'm beyond proud with how it turned out. I have no kids. I'm not hosting any sort of event. I chose to do this purely of my own enjoyment. Cheers to queer adults doing shit for themselves. And cheers to the gay audacity that convinced me to do this, despite never having done anything like this before. Dana, I'm sure you understand. So please enjoy my creation. This Barbie is a monster. See pics below and you will see my pet tax uh, just chilling in the jaws. Mozzarella and Captain, both Merle Corgis. Oh, and yes, I chose the house colors and I live just outside Portland, Oregon. <gasps> This is the coolest house. And look at the corgis. This, this doesn't even look real. This looks like a painting. Like I would see it in a fairy tale. I want to go trick. I want to go to there. As Liz Lemon would say. Naomi, this is amazing. I hope everybody can see these photos. Ooh, it's even better at night. This is so amazing. Thank you for sending that in. I This is so, what a good job. Thank you, Naomi. All right, next up from uh, Anonymous, pronoun she and her. I have a shout out. This morning, I was walking around Edgecombe Rec Center in St. Paul, Minnesota, taking in the fall colors, when I noticed a group of about 10 St. Paul Parks and Recreation employees creating the framework for our neighborhood ice rinks. As I reflected on all the fun times that were had at the rink last winter, I thought about the song We Are Santa's Elves from the 1960s holiday classic Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. When I crossed paths with the workers and made a reference to that song, one of the elves smiled and started humming it. The grounds of this particular rec center have been a remarkable transformation in recent weeks. Taming weeds, removing dead trees, fresh paint by the entrance, and the removal of weird debris that had piled up for a long time. Thank you, SPPR staff. Your efforts are noticed and appreciated. The pictures of Pelosi, my dog, are always are my way of circulating some joy. And there's Pelosi. What a sweet baby. And some really great spread the love spatulas. <laughs> this dog is awesome. Thank you so much, Anonymous. That's so great. And thanks to the Parks and Rec fo folks up there for all the, all the work that you do. Next up, Mary, pronouns she and her. Thanks so much, both of you, for the Daily Dose of Sanity. I listen to you every morning when I'm driving my 17-year-old son to school, and he started asking questions as you report on things. Do you know how hard it is to get a 17-year-old to make conversation? This is a miracle. Yes, Mary, I, I was 17 at one point, and I was uh, not real talky with my parents. I wanted to respond to John Fugelsang's observations about progressive Christianity. I, too, was raised Catholic and watched the hard pivot of the church from liberation theology, think nuns in El Salvador or Archbishop Oscar Romero, to abortion, abortion, abortion. Even as a kid, I thought it was weird. And you may not know this, but evangelicals do not consider Catholics to be Christian. They think we worship statues. My parents married young and raised seven kids before they dropped out of society to join the Catholic worker movement founded by Dorothy Day. They spent their retirement living in the community, building and improving housing for the poor, and just generally living what Jesus said. They're both gone now, but I'll never stop being proud of them for that. Please accept a pic of our dog, Chip, as pet tax. Also, please ignore the mess in the background and just focus on the eyes, those eyebrows, those mutton chops, and those bonkers ears, which move independently of each other and are my favorite family game. He is a mutt and a rescue, and we have a few leads to as his breeds, but what do you think? 
Oh my God. <laughs> this looks like Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> this is the coolest looking dog. Uh, Chihuahua, uh, Chinese crested, some sort of terrier, a schnauzer. Oh, it's whatever. This dog is so cool looking. Thank you for sharing. And thanks for sharing that. Yeah, that was a really great interview with John Fugel saying yesterday. I love that. The separation of church and hate. All right. Next up for my Andrea pronoun she and her. Hello. I have a whole pinata full of good news, etc. Items for you today. First, a thesis title. Quote, long term impacts of marine derived nitrogen on forest productivity and carbon balance in central Idaho. Translation. When salmon swim upstream from the ocean, the streams where they were born to spawn and die, their bodies add nutrients to the ecosystems that make trees grow more and ecosystems sequester more carbon. Fish against climate change. <laughs> it's a thesis that took me too many years to get through due to chronic illness, but damn it, I made it and I'm still proud of the cool project and glad it's done and grateful for the many supportive people who helped me get there. And the coolest part? I got a tiny monument of fame when a PBS nature film crew joined our multi-institution project where, uh, when we were carrying dead fish into streams that no longer had salmon so we could track their nutrients through the ecosystem. So if you see the episode of Nature on Columbia Basin salmon, about 45 minutes in, I'm on screen for about two seconds carrying a box of dead fish. What a legacy. <laughs> Second, a whoopee story. This summer, I visited my mom, and while I was there, I went through a few remaining boxes of my old things. In one, I found my beloved piggy a little beanbag pig that was made of some sort of pleather, but whose quote-unquote skin got rubbed off years ago. So here's my little naked piggy with my big hairy kitty Seymour. And finally, for additional pod pet tax, here are three kittens my dad's cat had this summer. Rosa, Kitsch, and Voldemort are all looking for homes in western Colorado, Grand Junction to Glenwood area. I know that Bobert, I know that's Bobert country, but I also know the Leguminati are everywhere. So if someone is in that area listening and wants a super snugly, well-socialized, beautiful gray kitty, I can hook you up. I have their sister, Ren, also pictured. She's a magical beastie. And yes, Mama is getting spayed soon. There's a link to a form you can fill out, by the way, in the show notes if you want to adopt these kittens. We'll make that available for you. Thank you for the news and the good news. I'm grateful for it every day. All right. The kitty and the piggy adorbs. That's so cool that you found that. Oh, look at these beautiful gray babies. Oh, these are wonderful. Again, there's a link in the show notes if you want to adopt these guys. That is the Grand Junction to Glenwood area in western Colorado. Bobert country, but you're right. There's leguminati everywhere. And finally, from Laurel, pronouns she and her, a warm hello to the Beans Queens. Uh, I have good news. It begins with sad news, though. I lost my father last week. He was born and raised in East Tennessee. He migrated with my mother to Baltimore for work, and that's where I was raised. He said he didn't want kids to live like he had. He decided he was an atheist because the fire and brimstone just spooked him. He was a pro-choice, live-and-let-live conservative. Then he got swept up and bamboozled by Fox and voted for Trump. His wife is MAGA. Fast forward, we celebrated his 90th birthday party a few weeks before his death. It was a family reunion. He seemed happy and emotional. And during the party, he took one of my aunts aside and said, what Trump did after the elections was unconscionable, and I would never vote for him or anyone like him. I'm proud of him, the man from the Southern Mountains who rejected fundamentalist religion, ended up rejecting Trump and MAGA. There is hope. See you next time, Pops. Getting a little misty over here. Who's cutting onions? Who is cutting onions? 
Laurel, thank you for that story. And here's a beautiful photo of them. That's wonderful. Thank you for sending that in. There is hope. There is hope. Thank you so much. All right, everybody. I will be back in your ears tomorrow. <sighs> Tomorrow's Friday. Who do we got on the docket for an interview tomorrow? Oh, I know. I remember. It's the wonderful, incredible, amazing Anna Bauer from Lawfare. She is the the Georgian down there in Atlanta been reporting like a, like a boss. She's absolutely incredible. You've seen her on MSNBC and we're going to have her in here tomorrow uh, to speak with her for a little bit. Thanks again to my buddy, Glenn. We really appreciate you coming by. Um, I, we need to have Glenn on more. I think uh, Jack always make sure to check out justice matters. You won't be sorry. And uh, everybody else, remember, like I said, we're going to have that happy hour on November 3rd for patrons. There's going to be the bone, uh, the bones, the beans bonus bones episode uh, for patrons this weekend. That's a weekly wrap up that I do of all the headlines from the week. And we'll also have the cleanup on aisle 45 bonus. And then, of course, the Jack podcast on Sunday. I appreciate all of you listening and hanging in there this week while Dana's out. I miss her, too. And I will see you tomorrow. Until then, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet. Take care of your mental health. Take care of your family. Vote blue over Q and bring someone with you. I've been AG and them's the beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants, and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch.
you will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.